clip. That's what. What's the idea? Well, what's the big idea? What's the big idea? What's the big idea, Egghead? What's the big idea? Welcome back to What's the Big Idea. Today on the show, we have none other than Sam Horn, who happens to be my mom. So my mom is a, a really incredible human. She's a, a big reason I am the way that I am. Um, but on the professional front, she is pretty remarkable in her own right. So she has published now nine books. Uh, she is a Hall of Fame speaker and you know has really focused her work and her mission around communication. So interpersonal dynamics, helping people to show up confidently, defuse conflict, concentrate on things that are most important. And in the last half of her life, uh, her work has really shifted into the realm of strategic communication and branding, how to articulate the value of your ideas. So whether that is a book that you're working on, whether that is a business, whether that is a presentation or TED talk you have coming up, she works with entrepreneurs at the highest level to help them really uh, package information down so that people get it and care about it. And her big idea today is all about how if you want to succeed, you have to intrigue. And this talk follows this really beautiful arc of showing you how to tell your signature story to connect people emotionally, how to find statistics that show people why this matters in a macro context, and how to really distill the impact that you want to have in the world. So not only is it fun to uh, be able to jam with my mom and tell her why I love her and why you should probably tell your mom why you love her, uh, but this one is super actionable. Uh, by the end of this, you're going to have like an actual document, hopefully if you're taking notes, filled out with different things that uh, that you want to do for your own business. So without further ado, Sam Horn. Welcome back to What's the Big Idea? This is your host, Andrew Horn, and I am here with the real creator of What's the Big Idea, my mom, Sam Horn. Hi, Sam. Why, thank you, Andrew. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I am imprinting, imprinting, imprinting. Uh, what's it like to see me doing this? You know, Andrew, it is the realization of a dream. It is I look at you and at the same time, I see this boy who is surfing the waves in Maui. And I see this young man who is a leader at Virginia Tech. And now I see you married to your soulmate and the father of Happy Hero and doing exactly what you were born to do. So it's uh, pretty great. Very cool. Well, I'm, I'm excited to uh, open the world up to so much of your wisdom, which has been so fundamental in really the success of, of all my previous projects and businesses and ideas. And as you know, we like to focus on really bringing some of the smartest, most creative people on the planet onto the onto the show to distill a singular idea that they wish more people could know. Um, so quickly, just introduce us to what that idea is. You know, my big idea happened at the Maui Writers Conference. And as you know, because you were there, it is what we did was unprecedented. We gave people from around the world an opportunity to jump the chain of command and they could pitch face to face. You could pitch your screenplay to Ron Howard. You could pitch your novel to the head of Doubleday. What we didn't anticipate was that no one knew how to pitch. 
And a young woman walked out of her meeting with tears in her eyes. And I went over, I said, are you okay? And she said, no, I just saw my dream go down the drain. And I asked what happened. She said, I plopped my 300-page manuscript down on the desk. And the editor took one look at it and said, I don't have time to read all that. Tell me in 60 seconds what it's about and why we'd want to read it. And she said, my mind went blank. She said, I thought my job was to write it. I thought it was their job to sell it. And I talked with Bob Loomis that night, who is senior VP of Random House, and his clients are Maya Angelou and Woody Allen. I said, Bob, what's going on? He said, Sam, we've seen thousands of proposals. We make up our mind in the first 60 seconds, whether something is commercially viable. And that next day, I stood in the back of the room and I watched people who had been working on their projects for years, and they would be asked, what's your project about? And I could predict, without hearing a word being said, who was going to get a deal based on one thing. Guess what it was? The decision maker's eyebrows. If the eyebrows were crunched up right now when you're listening to this, crunch up your eyebrows. Don't you feel confused? Confused people don't say yes. And if the decision maker's eyebrows were unmoved, it meant they were unmoved or they'd had Botox. (laughs) Now, if the eyebrows were up, it meant they were intrigued. They were curious. They wanted to know more. That means we just got what we care about in their mental door. And so that's why I'm a woman on a mission about how, when we care about something, we can get people's eyebrows up so they care about it too. And so tell me a little more about, you know, we talked about the My Writers Conference, which you helped to start and emceed for many years. But can you just quickly, before we get into the essence of how to intrigue, how to get people's eyebrows up, um, your own journey to the My Writers Conference and what got you there? If you were to be asked the question, what do you do? How do you answer that? You know, Andrew, uh, you and I both believe in Crossroads and making crucial decisions at crossroads. And my first crossroads that set up this whole path of serendestiny was when I was going to college and I couldn't decide what major I wanted. And there were people telling me, you have to be a lawyer, you have to be a doctor to use your mind. I didn't want to be a doctor lawyer. I wanted to study recreation administration because I'd grown up playing sports and running recreation leagues and so forth. But I was being told that that was a slacker career. What are you going to teach underwater basket weaving or something like that. And I was so fortunate because my dad gave me a quote from Goethe from W.H. Murray that talks about how boldness has genius in it. And that when we make a decision that is in alignment with our values and vision and voice, that that sets in motion a congruent life that just gets better and better and better. So I had the courage and the clarity to study recreation administration. That led me to working with Rod Laver in the tennis industry. That led me to the Regency Racquet Club in Washington, D.C., where I had a chance to play tennis at the White House. And that led to then moving to Hawaii, where the first week I was there, I went up to University of Hawaii, and I pitched a course on concentration. And Dr. Ray Oshiro took took a chance on me. That first course, we had 30 people from different industries, and they all said, please come speak to our company or speak at our convention. And that launched my speaking career. And so since that day with, with Dr. Ray, um, what, what did this career of yours become? Because what started in concentration then evolved into many other areas. So what was that career journey for you? 
You know, my criteria for picking courses was that I wanted something that was original, that hadn't been done to death. I wanted something that was useful, that people could actually use in their their lives. And I wanted something that was accessible. So someone in a concentration course said, you know, Sam, it's not that I can't concentrate. It's that, you know, I'm dealing with these people who interrupt me all the time, all these meetings, and and I really need to know how to concentrate when I'm dealing with difficult people. So I offered a course called Dealing with Difficult People Without Becoming One Yourself. And at the first session, there was a gentleman in the front row, and he didn't get up to get a cup of coffee or go get some fresh air. He just sat there gazing off into space. And I was curious. I went over. I said, what are you thinking? He said, Sam, I'm a real estate broker. He said, I deal with some very demanding and arrogant people, and they seem to think they can treat me any way they want to. I'm tired of it. He said, I took this course so I could learn some zingers to fire back at people and put them in their place. He said, that's not what this is about, is it? I said, you're right. And he said, I'm a student of martial arts. He said, I've studied karate, taekwondo, judo. He said, what you're talking about is kind of like a verbal form of kung fu, isn't it? Eureka! Yeah, it's kind of like a tongue fu. That's how I started speaking and writing about tongue fu, which led to other courses, which led to books, which led to coaching and consulting. That's what catalyzed it all. And so, when did so communication for you was it really in that moment at my writers' conference where it shifted from being this focus on interpersonal dynamics to? How would you even kind of qualify what you now do for authors and entrepreneurs in the realm of like strategic communication, helping people to articulate the value of your ideas? Was that the first place that it really catalyzed for you? Or when did that become the true, when did you really kind of crystallize that that was an area that you were not only keen needed to exist, but that you could really help people with. Andrew, that's a great distinction because you're right. Tung Fu is about interpersonal communication and dealing with difficult people without becoming one ourselves, etc. And my other books are how to concentrate in a, in a crazy busy office and, and confidence is how to go where we want, when we want, meet anyone we want. You're right though, at Maui Writers Conference, I felt the pain of people who had something important to offer and did not have the ability to crystallize it and communicate it in a way that got a yes to it. And that's really when I decided somebody's got to do something about this. I'm as much as somebody's anybody, so I'm going to do something about it. And that's when I started coming up with methodologies for how do we have people at hello? How do we come up with a 60-second opening that even the most distracted, skeptical person, their eyebrows will go up and they want to listen to us? You know, how can we stop infobesity, wah-wah, 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 and get across what we want to say very quickly and concisely so people actually can repeat it? So you're right. That was uh, when I switched gears and really started caring about whether it's writing a book or doing a TED Talk or coming up with a tagline for our brand that connects. Yeah. And so one of the things that I've, I've always found fascinating about you is that you don't read mm-hmm. other people's books for the sake of keeping your own material really uh, proprietary and unique. And so how did you transition from interpos- interpersonal dynamics into let's just call it strategic communication for lack of a better word? When you started talking about coming up with those frameworks and methodologies, 
Where did it come from? Hmm. Well, I'll tell you why I, I got so clear about not reading other people's work is because, as you know, some people, if they're going to write or speak about customer service or stress management, they just go and read everyone else's books and then they cut and paste, you know, everyone else's work. And, you know, that's called stealing. <laughs> you know, that's, that's a book report. That's not original work. And why I got so clear on that is when Tung Fu came out, someone came up to me and said, oh, you must have read all of Tony Robbins' work because you've got a lot of his ideas. Well, Tony endorsed the book, but I'd never read Tony's work. So see, I knew in my heart that I hadn't taken that. I hadn't cobbled it from Tony. And so... What I base that on is something my dad said when I gave my eighth grade graduation speech, and it was about the little bird leaving the nest, and, and I asked dad what he thought. And my dad was head of FFA for California, which really believes that speaking is how you scale your impact for good. And I said, so what do you think? And he paused for a minute, and then he really looked at me to make sure I wanted the truth. And he said, it's an okay speech. I just didn't hear anything I hadn't heard before. And he said, if we're going to ask people for their time and attention, it is our responsibility to say something original. I said, but dad, there's nothing new under the sun. He said, sure there is. You know what the definition of original is? If we haven't heard it before. <laughs> so see, Andrew, in my work, I believe if we tell true anecdotes from our life, if we put people in the scene of what we've experienced in our resulting epiphany, the idea may have been around for years, but they won't have heard that version before. They won't have been in that scene before. And that is keeping our obligation. If we're going to ask people for their time, it is our responsibility to communicate it in a way that they haven't heard a hundred times before so that it actually adds value. So this has been one of the probably the most impactful things that I've learned from you is this, this idea of kind of the signature story and how mm -hmm. to package our own ideas mm -hmm. in the context of personal exp experience and epiphany. Mm -hmm. So can you say a little more for people that might be listening? And again, a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of authors, mm -hmm. a lot of consultants, uh, what is it that you're talking about? Why does it matter? Two things is like, we've all been told to tell people what we're going to tell them and then tell them and then tell them what we told them, right? That's a prescription for being a bore, snore, or chore. And we've also been told to start with why, right? Now, kudos to Simon Sinek, who has made a difference for millions of people with his brilliant work on Start With Why. I think sometimes when we start with why, we end up being generic, because maybe why we're doing this is we want to make a difference. Well, everyone wants to make a difference, so that's that's generic. The genius is in starting with where. And I'll give you a quick example of this. Marilyn King, who is an Olympic athlete, is one of my clients. Now, she is a brilliant woman. However, her topic on Olympian thinking wasn't getting the traction that it deserved. And she asked a meeting planner, why not? And the meeting planner said, well, you know about Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And if we have employees who are down there in survival needs or having a hard time paying their bills or they have a health challenge or going through a divorce, Olympian thinking is way up there on self-actualization. It's so far away and distant, it's not relevant to them. So I said, Marilyn, start with where? Put me in the scene of where you begin to care. And Marilyn said, well, I grew up swimming. 
And I was so tall and lanky, I swam for the Y, and we swam against a lot of country club teams. And they always teased me because I was so tall and lanky until the day I won all my races, and then they turned around and tried to recruit me. And it left such a sour taste in my mouth. I went home, I told my mom, I quit. And my mom said, you can quit as long as you pick up a different sport. So I tried track. And at my first meet, I'm getting ready for an event, and the announcer comes on and says, we're holding the East Coast Championship for the pentathlon, and we only have two contestants, and we need three to make it official. Would anyone here like to volunteer? She said, I looked at my coach. I didn't even know what the events were in the pentathlon, but I thought, the worst I can do is be third in the East Coast. So I tried it, and I loved it. And I went home, and there was an abandoned track across the street from our house. So I would take the bus home from school, and I would go and train at that track. And it would get so dark some nights, I had to tape a flashlight so that I could see where I was going. I actually put nail polish on the curb so I could know where I was supposed to hurdle. She said, after a few months, I realized I'm never going to get better training myself. I started asking people, come and work out with me. No one wants to train on a track <laughs> at night. She said, I get a dog, Squire, a boxer. I train Squire to run with me. She said, you cannot make this stuff up. I have pictures of me and Squire on that track. And I said, Marilyn, that's the best wear story I've ever heard. She said, that's only the fourth time I've ever told that story. And I said, Why? And she said, my first speaking coach told me that stories were fluff and didn't belong in business communications. And I said, I disagree. If you start with where, now people know where you're coming from. That's when they start to care when they know where. Suffice it to say, that's how she opens her presentations now. It humanizes that talk of Olympian thinking, and it shows us about her perseverance and about her resourcefulness. (laughs) And it is now a one-of-a-kind opening that is organic and original. I believe that's what an origin story is original to you and it will be new and true well so i want to push back on it because i think Mm. that a lot of resistance that people have is that people don't care about my story Uh, what do you say to that person i'm so glad you said that i actually have a linkedin blog that's got hundreds of thousands of views on why not to start with a bio this is not coming from arrogance this is not coming from here's what i've done and here's what i've achieved and here's my laundry list of credentials so it is not trying to establish our authority and it is not trying to impress people. It is trying to connect with people. Where have I been in a situation that will give my content context? You know, where can I put people in the scene of when I experienced something that was awful and I thought, I don't want this to happen to anyone else, so I'm going to start this organization to prevent it from happening to others. Or I have seen people struggle with this, or I've seen people who don't know how to do this, and I was there too. I have felt that too, and and I was mobilized to do something about it. And that's why I'm speaking to you today. That's why I'm writing about it. See, it is not about impressing, it's about connecting. Cool. And so what about the idea of does it have to be about you Mm. and your personal experience to provide context or like if you're running a company or your work has impacted someone, you know, can you also use the story of another person to provide that context of like why you do something? Huh. 
that's a great question, Andrew. And I think it's a little bit of both. If we can play for a second, let's talk about Dreams for Kids, which is an organization that you started and you had an opportunity to go to Chicago and work with Tom Tui. And I think you saw how an event could transform a young person who is in a wheelchair and yet they felt seen and heard and special. And so I think you seeing them gave you the incentive to start Dreams for Kids in DC. So see, it's a little bit of both, right? You know, that was happening to other people. However, when you had a chance to experience them and identify them and relate with them and want to do something that served them, that that's why you became a man on a mission and started that organization that helped others get off the sidelines and into the games of life. And I know that you help a lot of people to actually structure these stories. So Mm -hmm. what is your framework for helping people to structure this story for their business, for their idea, their movement? I hope that people have paper right now. In 17 years of Maui Writers Conference, that was the most important takeaway. Our best-selling authors, whether it was Mitch Album or Dave Barry or or Frank McCourt, they didn't agree on anything, you know, except this one thing, ink it when you think it. So if our listeners, uh, as long as they're not driving, listening to this podcast, if they've got paper, just quickly put down WAVE, and we're going to talk about how to WAVE a real-life example and our where story so that it comes alive in the reader's mind or in the audience's mind. And the first W is like, who? So were you 13 years old? <laughs> you know, it's like, were you, were you a um, rocket scientist? So who are you? Second is where and when. Did this happen to you at 30,000 feet on an airplane? Did you wake up at night at 3 a.m.? So where and when did this happen so we are in the scene with you? And the next is a non-negotiable, what was said. So it's www, what was said. Why can we read novels for hours at a time and it's not hard work? It's because it has he said, she said dialogue. So recreate the conversation so we are part of it. A is adversity. If if our origin story, our where story, or any story doesn't have some conflict or pushback or naysaying or cynic, it just comes across as to Pollyanna, Kumbaya and Rainbows. V is for victory. Now, it doesn't have to be the Wookiees happening at the end. It doesn't have to be a happy ending. But what was the resolution? What was the point of it all? What was the takeaway or the resolve? And then E is for the emotional context. How did it make you feel? Did it, did you decide as a result of that, that, uh, you were going to remember that for the rest of your life? Did you decide as a result of that, that you understood what it was like to be listened to and felt and seen, and you're going to do that for others? And if you have a story, now distill it to under two minutes. Start with the who, the where and the when, what was said, the adversity, the victory, and the emotional context. And if you have those elements, people will be in that situation with you, and you will make your story their story, and you will be communicating to connect. You know, when I think about the signature story in my own work, Hmm. I oftentimes think about, I forget who it was, um, Maybe it was Einstein who said that we try to convince ourselves that we are rational beings, but Mm -hmm. at the end of the day, we are emotional ones. And that the idea that we can present people with just the facts, even if they are compelling, 
is that the the facts of our business, you know, whether we are running a company, whether we are leading a nonprofit, that the statistics, the data that represent how effective we are at doing what we say we're going to do is is certainly important. And that's how we inform people. But to make people choose us, this emotional connection is essential because we're emotional beings. And so to build trust, this is such an important thing not just to help people understand what we do, but to really make them want to pick us versus other people, which I think is such an important thing to to really integrate into this conversation as well. Andrew, you're, it's a non-negotiable, isn't it? Because if people are going to feel our totality, um, I believe we need to be yin-yang, and we need to be right and left brain, and we need to have facts and feelings and statistics and stories. In fact, people ask how my brain works. As you know, I juxtapose everything. As soon as someone starts talking, I put a vertical line down the center of a piece of a paper because I have a colleague who is a publisher. And do you know what his number one prerequisite is for publishing a book? Mm. What's the shift? <laughs> and see, if we take a piece of paper, put a vertical line down on center and have a left column and a right column, on the left column is the past, on the right column is the future. On the left column is what's sabotaging our success. On the right is what's supporting it. On the left is what's compromising our effectiveness. On the right is what's contributing to it. Now we can crystallize the most complicated idea into alliterative words that show the shift. And furthermore, we are Elmore Leonarding our material. And you know what that is. Yeah. Elmore Leonard is one of our favorite keynotes at Maui Writers Conference. And someone stood up in his Q&A and said, Mr. Leonard, people love your books. Why do you think people love your books? And you know what he said? I try to leave out the parts people skip. <laughs> when we juxtapose things, we are honoring the yin, yang, and the left and the right brain, and we're honoring the past and the future and what works and what doesn't work. And once again, we are crystallizing it. We're leaving out all the infobesity so that it is so clear that we're on the same page and anyone can get it, remember it, and act on it. I think it also really holds us accountable in the context of people who are writing mm -hmm. that the transformative shift forces us to articulate like what it is that we're really here to do mm -hmm. is that that idea of the way that I oftentimes think about it is undesired behavior that is currently being expressed by our readers or the people that we're speaking to mm -hmm. and then desired behavior. And that if you can not only talk about what it is that you are going to empower or enable in people, in the world, but also talk about what that current behavior is that is undesired, oftentimes it not only makes what you're doing clearer, but it's an easy way to speak to the people that are experiencing the undesired behavior. Andrew, you're so right. It's the difference between being reactive and proactive. It's you're an athlete. I had the privilege of working with Rod Laver down on Hilton Head Island in South Carolina. And you know, in sports, you don't tell people what not to do or what to stop doing. If you say to someone, don't double fault, don't drop the ball. <laughs> you know, if you're surfing and it's like, you know, don't fall off, you're going to do the very thing <laughs> you're trying not to do because it's what you're thinking about. So we identify it 
bit like in tennis. Instead of stop hitting off your back foot, it's you step into the ball. You step into the ball, right? Instead of don't double fault, it gets your first serve in. So you're right. In our behavior, if we're focusing on what we don't want, we will perpetuate the problem. Instead, if we identify it and then what is our preferred alternative, what is uh, what we aspire to do, what we want and intend to do, and we focus on that, we'll move toward it. Yeah, absolutely. And so you, so now we've talked about really kind of like the signature story, connecting people emotionally. We've talked about really articulating the shift that we want to bring about in our audience or in the world with something like a company. And you talked about the idea of stories and statistics about how to really meld those left brain, right brain pitches. Mm -hmm. So how do you do that? How do you integrate both of those in a way that is compelling and interesting and, and natural? I, I love this question, and I think you already know the answer to it, is that I am the pitch coach for Springboard Enterprises, and we've helped women entrepreneurs get $8.8 billion in funding. So here is an example, because you and I both agree, we, we don't explain, we use an example, because <laughs> explanations are infobesity, and examples, the lights go on and the band plays, because it's real proof of concept. So here's the example. Uh, a woman named Kathleen Callender came up to me, springboard grad, and she said, Sam, I've got good news and I've got bad news. I said, what's the good news? She said, I'm speaking in front of a room full of investors at the Paley Center. I said, that's fantastic. I said, what's the bad news? She said, I'm going at 2.30 in the afternoon and I only have 10 minutes. She said, you can't say anything in 10 minutes. I said, Kathleen, you don't have 10 minutes. You have 60 seconds. <laughs> Here is the 60-second opening we came up with that does just what you're saying, Andrew. It combines left and right brain. It gets skeptical, busy, tired, bored, people's eyebrows up, and it won her millions of dollars in funding, and it helped her become Business Week's most promising social entrepreneur of that year. So here's the 60-second opening. Did you know there are 1.8 billion vaccinations given every year? Did you know up to a third of those are given with reused needles? Do you know we're spreading and perpetuating the very diseases we're trying to prevent? Imagine if there were a painless one-use needle for a fraction of the current cost. You don't have to imagine it. We're doing it, and she's off and running. Now, let's think about what she used to say. She used to s describe PharmaJet, her company, as a medical delivery device for subcutaneous inoculations. A what? It's a what? Now, I hope people still have their paper in front of them, because let's make this interactive right now. What is a project you want a yes to? What is a meeting you're going into? What is a pitch or presentation you're giving? Do you want 60 seconds that does just what Andrew talks about, which it is a combination of statistics and stories that actually gets people's eyebrows up? Start with three did you know questions that go to the scope of the problem you're solving or the issue that you're addressing or the need that you're meeting. And now if you're thinking, where do I find these startling statistics? You know, Andrew, where do they, how do they do it? Well, so this is uh, something that I think I've built on top of this powerful <laughs> framework. But one of the core techniques that I've taught my interns over the years running companies is the concept of GTS, 
So GTS stands for Google that shit. And the general rule of thumb is that don't ask me a question unless you have literally plugged it into Google at least once, because more often than not, the answer will be directly in Google. And so what I encourage people to do and do this now with almost all of my audiences when we're doing these kinds of brand uh, presentations is to Google three shocking statistics about X. So whatever your industry is, whether that's environmentalism, whether that is sustainable coffee, whether that is uh, ethical technology, if you just Google shocking statistics about X, you will find at least one blog post that has already kind of curated all of these statistics that really quickly point people's attention to how this is not just something that you care about, but something that is needed in the world. And it is the quickest way to get smart people's attention because they're smarter than they were you know, 20 seconds ago. And if we're an expert and we don't know it, chances are they won't know it. And that's how we win people's attention is by introducing something they don't know. Now, the second step is the word imagine. Uh, the word imagine is the quickest way to pull people out of their preoccupation because now they're seeing what we're saying and they're picturing our point. So they're not playing with their digital device, they're picturing this, and then link it to three benefits. So think back to Kathleen Callender. What were her decision makers thinking about? Well, those reused needles, so we made it one use. They're thinking about painful inoculation, so we made it painless. Most decision makers care about money, so we made it a fraction of the current cost. In a world of infobesity, do you see how we distilled into one succinct sentence. Oh, who wouldn't want that scenario? If you do this in your pitch, in your presentation, in your opening at that meeting, people will be thinking, sounds good. <laughs> and now the third step is you don't have to imagine it. We're doing it. Now come in with your precedents, your evidence, or your testimony, or your story to show this isn't pie in the sky or speculative. It's a done deal, and you're ready to run with it. And so, and one thing that I would say about the power of this, which again, it's like whether you're running a company, whether you're writing a book, to have at least three st statistics that kind of provide this scope or the urgency of the issue is that as an entrepreneur, one of the things that's been really empowering about this knowledge and really having this for all of my companies is because it does provide this proof that what you're doing is not something that's just important to you, but something that is fundamentally impacting other people in the world. And so when we think about the idea of purpose, of like being connected to something greater than ourselves, it's one thing to do something because you're passionate about it. And it's another thing to be able to do something and articulate why it matters for the world. And so that's why that's such a powerful thing to connect with. So now we've gone through story, we've gone through stats, we've gone through the the transformative shift in our audience. So what advice would you give to people? One of your most popular books is one called Concrete Confidence, which then switched, right? To, yeah. Uh, what's holding you back? What's holding you back? Mm -hmm. um, so for people who have an idea inside of them, who want to write about something, who want to speak about something, who want to create a Kickstarter video to launch a new business, um, what are the techniques that have been most effective with your clients for delivering these messages powerfully? So when we understand the statistics, why this matters, when we understand our story, why we're doing it, and the impact that we'd like to have, how do you actually get up in front of people and tell this authentically and powerfully? 
Wonderful. Now, can there be two answers to this? A as logical and an emotional would, one? As many as you would like. <laughs> okay, so let's do the logical and the tactical one first, and then let's do the emotional and the psychological aspect, right? Because, Andrew, what you're talking about is writing a book or giving a TEDx talk or something. There is both the, the techniques and the tactics and the skills and so forth, and that's important. However, we can know that, and it doesn't mean that we're going to do it unless we have the confidence and the courage to do it, right? So two answers. So let's do the tactical one first. So uh, do you know who Sherry Salata is? I do not. Okay. Sherry was the executive producer for Oprah Winfrey Show for years, and she also uh, ran Harpo and ran Own OWN, uh, Oprah's TV station, and she's just come out with a wonderful book called The Beautiful No. Well, a couple years ago, I had an opportunity to host a program with Sherry on it, and in her interview, she said, almost as a throwaway line, she said, if I ever write a book, I know what I'm going to call it. And I said, what? And she said, I did everything all wrong, but it turned out all right. I said, Sherry, that's a fantastic title. And and I said, tell me you're writing that book. And she said, Sam, I don't know where to start. I mean, look at this woman's career, what she's done. She's been on the front seat of, of the self-empowerment movement for the last 25 years. And I said, Sherry, you're an executive producer. Storyboard the book. Just get index cards and just say, well, I want to tell about the time I put on a birthday party for Oprah at the United Center and Jerry Seinfeld and Michael Jordan and Chris Rock and everyone showed up. And I want to tell about this. And I want to tell about this. And I want to tell about this. Now you executive produce a show. So you know, you get your guest up in front of you so that you can see them and they will start configuring themselves. You think, well, this person's funny. Let's put them at the beginning of the show. And then it makes sense to go here because that's a little pushback and so forth. And then this person has been there, done that. Uh Oh, we have three women in a row. We need a man. Do you see how if you get it out of your head and up where you can see it? I'm reaching out to everyone listening here today. Just get a stack of index cards, and I'm a Luddite, so, but it's important not to do this on your laptop or on your digital device because that forces you to be linear. This is not a linear process. This is a creative process. So just think, well, I want to tell about that epiphany, and I want to talk about that example, and I want to talk about that shift, and it's one topic per subject. And then put them up on the wall and step back, and you'll be thinking, huh, well, I need to start here, and those are kind of the same. We'll put those together, and then you know what the next step is? Mm. You get otter.ai. Otter.ai is a godsend. What if I told you that you don't have to have time to write? Because most of us are busy and we think we'll write when we have time, right? Do you know anyone who has spare time? But you're on planes, you're sitting in doctor's offices, (laughs) you have breakfast over a cup of coffee. If you have these index cards, you can take one where your mind is hot and you think, oh, this just happened yesterday. I'm flush with this. I'm alive with this. I'm in a state of flow. Get the app otter.ai and start talking. Put yourself back in the scene. Relive it. What was it like? What did it look like? What did it feel like? What did it sound like? What were you thinking? What was the pushback? What was your epiphany? And relive that situation. 
Otter.ai is not only capturing the voice recording, you've got an instant transcript at the end of that five minutes, at the end of that 15 minutes. Boom, you've got a blog. Boom, you've got a chapter in a book. And now your voice is there. It's alive and you can clean it up. But now you've just done 60% of the work writing all integrated into your busy life as of right now. So that's one, just one tactical way that you can get that book out of your head and into the world starting now and not someday. So now you want to switch over to the emotional psychological side? Yes, please. Okay. The very first year of the Maui Writers Conference, I'm walking the beach because as you said, I was the MC. So I'm trying to get my intro straight. Here's a woman sitting on the beach crying. And I went over, I said, are you okay? She said, I'm not okay. I said, what's going on? She said, I don't belong here. You don't belong here? She said, who am I to write a book? She said, it's like you're putting yourself up on a pedestal. And it's so presumptuous, you know, like I'm an expert. I figured it out. and I'm going to tell you what to do. She said, that's so arrogant. That's just not me. And I said, well, what do you want to write about? And she said, I want to write about... My son, she said, my husband Howard and I have adopted a son and he's really challenging. And she said, I went to the library. I went to the bookstore to try and find books to help. And there are all these Pollyanna books about what a blessing it is to be an adoptive parent. They just made me feel worse. She said, I want to write the book I need. I can't find. And I said, well, give me an example. And she said, I want to write about the time that Ari was three years old and I fixed spaghetti for dinner and he reaches across the table and he grabs a handful of spaghetti and he throws it in my face. And my first thought was, my son would never have done that. And the shame that I felt that that thought had even occurred to me. I said, what else? She said, I want to talk about, even though he's challenging, when it's time to send pictures of Ari to his birth mother, I edit out the cute ones because I live in daily fear she's going to ask him back. And I said, Jana, the question to ask is not, who am I? It's not, am I perfect? Do you know what the question to ask is? Hmm. Would someone reading my book benefit? Because if someone reading your book will benefit, if your insights and experiences will add value for others, not only do you have the right to write, you have a responsibility to write. Have you ever thought about it that way? It's almost selfish to keep those lessons learned in your head. They don't do anyone any good in your head. Pablo Picasso said, the purpose of life is to find our gifts. The meaning is to give it away. I believe our experiences and lessons learned are gifts, and it is not selfish to give them away. It is how we serve. And by the way, if you go on Amazon, there will be Secret Thoughts of an Adoptive Mother by Jana Wolf. I just ran into her at the Hawaii Writers Conference a couple months ago, and 20 years after that book has been published, she told me not a week goes by that she doesn't get an email from someone saying, I thought I was the only one. Everyone listening, if you have a lesson learned and it might make someone feel like they're not the only one, it might give them a shortcut, it might inspire them because they're the right words at the right time, right on. Yeah, it's the difference of, of writing for 
some sort of recognition versus <laughs> service, right? You know, what's what's our inspiration to do so? You know, Andrew, it's um, I have criteria about my clients. I'm very fortunate to work with some really smart and talented visionaries who are making a big difference in the world. However, if someone comes to me and the first words out of their mouth are that they want a New York Times bestseller, you know, and they want this, I know it's not a match because if that's their first value, that's not my value. My value is that the books we write and the TEDx talks we give and the work we do is a pebble in the pond of, a, a hopefully, a legacy that will add value for others. And you're right. You know, I believe in metrics. We all need to earn a living. So money is important, you know, and running a thriving business with a financial bottom line. It's all important. It's just not what's most important. And so, you know, I think we've really synthesized some powerful things for, for people that have one of these priority projects kind of in the hopper and ready to go. I'm just curious now just to get a, a clear understanding of you, because I only have my mom on the podcast so often. Um, <laughs> what are the books that have most influenced your worldview and how you show up in the world? A pivotal, two books, actually. One was Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. I read that when in, when I was in my teens. And, and Andrew, I'm not being a Pollyanna here. That book resonated with me so much when he said, you can make more friends in two weeks by becoming interested in other people than you can in two years by trying to get people interested in you. The lights went on and the band played because up until then, I'm a fairly smart person. And you know what? I was trying to impress people. I really thought the way to make friends was to impress them with how clever I was or smart I was or something. And of course, people would backpedal as fast as they can, right? You know, and I thought, oh, you mean the key to going anywhere in the world and meeting anyone and being able to turn a stranger into a genuine friend is to not try to convince them with how clever I am or where I've been or what I've done. It is to be genuinely interested in them, to find out what's going on in their life, to find out what they're looking forward to, one of your favorite questions, what they're excited about. And Andrew, that is the passport to a well-lived life where we can go anywhere in the world and meet anyone and make a friend. And it is if we are centered in that, it really means... That, we're, that instead of being intimidated by people, we're intrigued by them. The other, by the way, is Reader's Digest. <laughs> uh, when my, my family would go to my grandmother's house for Easter or for Thanksgiving, uh, we would often go out into the back porch, and she had stacks of Reader's Digest. And back then, Reader's Digest was full of profiles and courage, and it was full of I'll always remember this, and I really, I mean, this was a long time ago, decades ago, Andrew, and it was a pivotal story that 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 made me think this is how I want to show up in life, and this is who I want to be. I'll probably get emotional about this one, is there was a woman who had written about standing in her kitchen, doing the dishes, and her sons were out flying a kite. And they came to the window and they said, Mom, come out and play with us. And she told them that she had to do the dishes. And she didn't go out and play with them. And she lost one of them. She said she would do anything to go back that day and go out and fly kites with her sons. So what has impacted me is that I hope that I am a mother 
who understands the importance of flying kites with her sons, and that I am a person who remains centered in what matters. And if we are too busy to stay connected with the people we care about, we're too busy. Beautiful. Well, so in in the vein of after that, um, thank you for being a, a mom who has flown kites with us and took a stand for us and been a consummate force of of love and support and really empowered Tom and I to both really pursue the things that we care about and love in the world. And you're an incredible human, a remarkable mother that I'm incredibly indebted and grateful for. Um, And one of the things we always say with, uh, with tribute is if you have anything nice to say, say it all. So, you know, as we bring this podcast to a close, um, if you hear this and you are lucky enough to still have uh, a mom around and in your life, wherever you guys are at, maybe just take a moment to, uh, to reach out and tell her why you're grateful for her because there's really no reason to keep that inside. So, so again, just to kind of distill what we went through here is the idea that if we really care about something, if we want to succeed, if we want to serve, then we have to think about how to intrigue about how to articulate the value of what we do. And we can start by telling a signature story, by really encapsulating the emotion of why we do what we do, why it matters. We can pair that with statistics of actually couching what we're doing in a more macro context of who stands to benefit. We can then package that and have clarity about our transformative shift. What is the undesired state of being? What is our desired state of being? And just realize that again, that sharing our our story is not about necessarily recognition. If it comes, great, but it ultimately is um, it's a mechanism for service and and speaking to people who share our experience in some way, shape, or form. And so, uh, so get to writing, get to speaking, get to building. Um, what's you just wrote a book called Some Days, not a day in the week. So, what would your What's, what's one of your favorite quotes to close us out there in terms of not waiting to do the things that you want to do? You know, uh, as some people know, I went on my year by the water because of something you said, Andrew, and because of something Paulo Coelho said. He said, one day we're going to wake up and there won't be any time left to do the things we've always wanted to do. And, uh, you know, Andrew, if as a result of this podcast, people crystallize one thing they really care about and they put some of these ideas into action and then they have the confidence and the courage and the clarity to do it now instead of someday well won't this have served amen i love you mom i love you andrew all right team signing off